It's old-timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And I don't know why I made us talk like robots. I don't either, but I was just going with it. I appreciate that about you very much. Yep, just gotta go with it sometimes. <laughs> so hey, listeners, we have a really fun episode ahead. We're gonna do something a little bit different. Before we do that, of course, as you know, we have the Patreon over at patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. You can come and get bonus episodes, five bonuses a month for $5. That's $1 an episode. You can't beat that deal. <sighs> Plus lots and lots of back catalog stuff too. So much. Well over 100 episodes at this point. And we do something over there that's kind of similar to what we're going to be doing here. Because unlike normally when Amber and I have both researched the same case, this time we're kind of doing two different cases. And each of us is researched on our own. And there's a common theme between them. So Christy's going to tell me a story that I know nothing about. And then I am going to tell Christy a story that she knows nothing about. So it's like surprise murders. <laughs> surprise. Well, in this case, it's surprise riots. Surprise riots. <laughs> because that is the theme of this episode. Riots. You know we love a good riot. Everybody loves a good riot. It's hard not to. There's so much to love about a good riot. I mean, there are some bad riots, but... <laughs> I mean, they can't all be cheese riots. No, right? Exactly. Oh, the cheese riots. That was one of my favorite bonus episodes ever. That was too. I still just picture it in my head, the chaos <laughs> of the mayor getting hit by a wheel of cheese as thousands of geese are flapping around, freaking out, and the whole town's going crazy and stealing each other's cheese. This is the kind of stuff you miss when you're not a patron. So, Just saying. I am going to tell Amber about the Rebecca riots. The Rebecca riots. Okay. Yes. And as you, you noticed when I handed you a piece of paper, my no show notes are titled Becky with the good hair. I'm excited. So we're going to kind of, again, some, sometimes we take a slightly long way to get there. And we're going to do that this time. Also, uh, I am going to be pronouncing the names of Welsh towns and such. I have practiced. I have Googled. I have listened to YouTube videos and read like pronunciation guides. I'm going to do my absolute best. I'm going to butcher the crap out of it, but do know that I am very, very much trying. She is actually trying. I do not try and I will just butcher it and be like, I'm sorry, whatever. Butcher first, apologize later. Exactly. That's a lot of the murders that we do. Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> yeah. So let's start with a little talk about Keffel Pren. So Keffel Pren is a type of mob justice, actually. Oh, it, I thought it was a person. I, it could be a person's name. It does sound very much like it could be somebody's name. <laughs> but it's actually a type of mob justice that used to be enacted now, Kefalpren uh, can also be called uh, the wooden horse, rough music, or riding the stang. Okay. Yes. So what they do is they have a wooden frame, and they would tie the offender to the wooden frame and parade them around town. Naked or? Generally, I think they were clothed. That's a shame. I know. So it's similar to another type of mob justice that was used in medieval times until the 18th century, actually, or really the 19th century. Stocks? Uh, the ducking stool or cucking stool. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So it is a sort of apparatus that uses ropes and levers to hold up a chair in which the offender, usually a woman, sometimes men, but usually a woman, would sit tied up. Uh, they would either tie her up in front of her house or at the place where she committed her offense. Some did have wheels and could be pushed around town or even to the river where the woman would be ducked into the water. Would they pull her back out or let her drown? Uh, they would pull her back out, but I do believe that the ducking stool was also used to test for witches. Oh, so sometimes they didn't. Yes, exactly. Sometimes they didn't pull her back up because that was the whole point. So with the Keffel Pren, they would also stick pins in the horse rider and do other things to torture them along the way. Sounds fun, right? It does. It's, well, if, if you're into that sort of thing, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> some people are. 
And honestly, it, it does feel like a giant town fetish. It does. I'm picturing like the, the guy dressed in the leather thong with the chain and like just leading him around, be like, you've been a bad boy. Let everyone see your butt. It just feels very like <laughs> naughty boy. Naughty to me. boy. It was generally enacted on people who did stuff like have affairs, beat their wives, men who abandoned pregnant women, people who neglected children. But it was not your standard mob rule. There was a touch of organization to it. I actually kind of want to bring it back just with this information. <laughs> they would have like a mock trial. So the mob would have a jury and a, a foreman of the jury who would decide on whether or not the punishment should be enacted on the accused offender. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that very much unlike what we see in some of our old-timey cases where they publish the names of the jury, these jury members wanted to remain anonymous. So they, generally men, of course, would blacken their faces and wear women's clothing. This is a very fetishy kind of thing, isn't it? Feels like it. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is like the first drag shows. <laughs> I mean, there's like S&M involved. You paint your faces, <laughs> put on women's clothes. It's only for the trial, sweetheart, I swear. Just let me borrow your panties. <laughs> the last one in the town of Amroth was in 1852. So here's the scenario. A well-to-do gentleman, he had a wife and children, and a governess. And he and the governess had an affair. Shocking. It was discovered. So the gentleman's wife and her lady companions paid a bunch of dudes to carry the woman on the cucking stool all around town. What punishment do you think that the man got? None. Ding, ding, ding! You're exactly right. <laughs> Seems fair. Your prize is disappointment. <laughs> I can't be any more disappointed than I already am. Yeah. And the man and the governess eloped to Ireland the very next day. Are you serious? They did kind of lead good lives once they got there. They both taught in prestigious schools. So... So he abandoned his wife and his children and ran away with their governess. And then taught other children. Yeah. And then taught other children the joys of affairs, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not all great, really. I love kids, just not my own. So all of this we see aspects of with the Rebecca riots that happened in West and Mid Wales between 1839 and 1843. So this was in rural areas where farming was a big source of income. And the issue... The main issue, depending on your perspective, was the tolls. That might have also been just what they took their frustrations out on because it was an easy target. But so the tolls, the issue there was many of the roads were owned by turnpike trusts. And the businessmen who operated them had no compunction about charging high fees to use the roads. They didn't actually take any of that profit to maintain the roads, so you basically had to pay a bunch to use shit roads. And we can see that this is a wonderful tradition that has carried on throughout the centuries. I was thinking, they still do that today. It's called the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Exactly. I think my mom said it cost her like 75 bucks to go to Reading. Like, it's ridiculously expensive to drive on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and it's not great. It's the worst road. I nearly died on it once, so. I, I still feel like it's better than the rest of the Pennsylvania roads, but it's, it's still a shit road. I, I don't like it. I avoid it at all costs, so. At extreme cost. Extreme cost, yeah, yeah, yeah. So those profits that they might get were really nothing to, uh, to sniff at. One single toll gate in 1838 took in 195 pounds, which is $18,000 today. So, like, would they just set up a gate and be like, you must pay me to pass? Essentially, yeah. Cool. And they would have auctions selling off a toll gate's takings for the coming year to the highest bidder. That's where I found that 195 pounds. It was an, an ad that was in the newspapers for, you know, next year's turnpike fees for this particular toll gate. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, so, like I said, I like to bypass the toll road. 
that was not really doable because they had these things called sidebars. These were little side roads that, you know, you might use to bypass the toll road. And then because people were doing that, they put tolls on the side roads and called them sidebars. Nice. So, and those ones, those ones actually cost sometimes more than the main roads did. I see an opportunity here. Yeah. Next thing I know, my road's going to have a toll on it. Amber's going to be standing there at the toll booth. Pay the toll. You got to pay the troll toll. And these toll gates were everywhere, and they really liked to take advantage of specific locations that would be high traffic, like a market town. There was one market town that was surrounded by toll gates, a dozen altogether. Wow. You could not get into that town and go to the market, whether to buy stuff or sell stuff, without paying the tolls. So the tolls were not just for carriages and coaches and the like. So an example would be on the bridge over the Severn Gorge... There were also tolls for wagons, carts, horses, mules, asses, oxen, cattle, pigs, sheep, lamb, and foot traffic. And tolls specifically for lime, which the farmers used as fertilizer. For coal, which obviously you use for heat. For grains, which you might be taking to feed your livestock or to sell at market. As well as for going on the roads and not going over the bridge. So, no one was excluded from these tolls. No one. There's a sign at the Severn Gorge Bridge that's stated at the bottom. This bridge being private property, every officer or soldier, whether on duty or not, is liable to pay toll for passing over as well as any baggage, wa- baggage wagon, mail coach, or the royal family. So even if you were the queen. So mail, I would think, wouldn't even be delivered often or at all. Because why would you pay the toll to give them their stuff. Yeah, really. And, you know, soldiers, even even in, on duty, had to pay the toll. Yeah, that's a big no for me. There were no exceptions. So, this is hardship enough, unless you're the royal family and then it's a gnat. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then you had a bunch of years with bad harvests and everything just piled on. So we have government tariffs making food more expensive. Mandatory 10% tithes to the Church of England, whether you went or not. And the thing is, is that many Welsh people did not go to the Church of England. They were actually what were called nonconformists. It was, a, it was a sect of religion, but it wasn't the Church of England. It's definitely not the Church of England, but they're paying a church that they don't even believe in. Exactly, yes. And... They felt that while previously the tithes had gone towards good things like education and aid for the poor, that had kind of changed, and now they were going right into the clergyman's pockets. Yeah. There were also uh, overly high rents on farms and homes. And say you improve the farm in order to make it more profitable and spend your money doing so, your rent goes up. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So you can understand why people were starting to get kind of pissed off. Yeah, and I can also understand why you would let a whole town turn into a slum, because why bother? Yeah, exactly. And so the farmers in Wales needed some kind of symbol to take their anger out on, something they could do publicly to protest how hard their lives were, thanks to all of these tolls and various systems put in place to wring them of every single penny that they wanted to use to feed their family. In the town of Ivalwen, a new toll gate was put up, specifically because farmers were using that road to bypass the toll roads. So we have a new sidebar. Sometimes they might, to take out their frustrations, maybe burn someone in effigy, but not this time. I would just burn all the toll keepers. Well, we'll get there. Okay, good. So they went after the toll gates themselves. These would generally be like a little hut, kind of. One to two rooms. I couldn't couldn't tell specifically, but I think sometimes the toll keeper would actually live there. It kind of sounds like he would have to, because otherwise people could just come and go in the dead of night or something. Yeah, this is not like an eight-hour job. You know, you're going to have to keep watch overnight, too. So there's a... We have one man who is kind of pinpointed as the leader of the first protest in 1839, 
and that is Tom Canarbooth or Thomas Rees. I could have just gone with the, the... You could have gone the easy route. Yeah, but I, I didn't You took to. the toll route. <laughs> I took the toll route. I did, yeah. He was a huge man, 33, and red-headed. And in the same, you know, we are anonymous spirit of the cucking stools, he wore women's clothes as he and his fellow protesters attacked and destroyed the toll gate at Evalwen. That mental image is bringing me lots of joy. It is fun, yeah. I'm just thinking of like a giant Irishman wearing women's clothing, spilling out of it everywhere because they probably did not fit him. (laughs) And it's amazing. Like this big, burly ginger in a ball gown. Generally, they would wear white gowns because I think that was easiest. Even better. (laughs) Big, burly ginger. In a nightdress. In a nightdress or better yet, a wedding dress. (laughs) There we go. The costumes may have not been just for the purpose of anonymity. Uh, Neil Evans on the BBC said, Normally respectable people may have felt that in disguise they were symbolizing their community rather than breaking the law as an individual. So these white dresses served kind of a dual purpose of, you know, giving them anonymity, giving them some cover, and also kind of almost as a uniform in a weird way. Like a town A very weird way. A very weird way, yeah. It was said that Tum Canarbooth seemed super into the dress thing, so that might have just been his deal, and that's fine. He might have just enjoyed it. It's Uh, breezy. I'm not going to shame. It's breezy, yeah. (laughs) Not to be deterred, the Toll Trust rebuilt the toll gate at Avaluen. Also not to be deterred, the locals gathered at the new toll gate, and this time they had a little mock trial. And the trial was for the Tollgate. That was the offender. So the purpose of this was to decide whether they felt that a tollgate was necessary. It's all kind of done with like a wink and a smirk. And the the nays had it. So they destroyed the tollgate again. I'm enjoying this. It is fun, yes. I knew you would love the riots. (laughs) They're very peaceful. We had a trial. We had a trial and everything. We wore our pretty white gowns. The blackface is a little less tasteful, but it wasn't done for the purposes that blackface was done in, like, minstrel shows, you know? Yeah. It was just done so you couldn't really make out their features and pick them out of a lineup. hmm There was also an attack on a workhouse that year, about seven miles south of Evaluen in Neberth. Now, workhouses were a newish idea at the time, and it seemed like a more punitive way of taking care of the poor that also separated families. Previously, money would be kind of paid into the town to help with the poor. Now it was done through the workhouse. If a family went to the workhouse, the, you know, mother and father were separated, the brother and sister were separated, they had, you know, men's areas and women's areas segregated by gender. And so it seemed kind of punitive, and people didn't really like the idea that their money was going towards this form of taking care of the poor. Yeah, by splitting up entire families. Yes. Yeah, that's not okay. So after 1839, there wasn't much of note for a year or two. But then in 1842, it popped back up again, because the economy, especially for farmers, had gotten even worse. And also, there was a new toll gate built at the Mermaid Tavern. Ooh. Love it. That seemed to be specifically targeting the transportation of lime. So it's essentially targeting the farmers. Then it became all-out war against the toll gates. Good. All the toll gates in three whole counties were destroyed by mobs of men dressed in women's clothes and faces painted black or wearing masks. And the mobs numbered from 200 to 300. That is amazing. I love it. It's incredible, yes. The government would not send any troops in. So the magistrate... Well, because their troops would have to pay tolls. (laughs) Right? (laughs) No, we're not sending you people. (laughs) Greedy bastards. That's going to cost us money. The magistrates got some marines from a dock and some local cavalry, but that didn't really seem to calm anything down. In fact, a mob of 2,000 attacked a workhouse. With the intention of burning it down, workhouses were a little easier to defend than toll houses. 
it's a big place. All the soldiers can just stay inside and defend it from there, you know. Whereas a toll gate, it's a little one to two room shack. Not so much with the garrisoning. Gar- yeah. Garrisoning. Garrisoning. Yes. Garrisoning. Oh, words. Sinning on the garret. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get better soon, but trust me. Somehow over time, whoever led the riots became known as Rebecca. The leader's kind of lieutenants, as you might think, would have names like Nellie and Miss Cromwell and Charlotte. This is the first drag show. It very much is, yes. The followers were known as Rebecca's Daughters, although the group as a whole uh, could be called Rebecca's in general. And the papers called it Rebecca-ism. I love it. You're going to become a follower of Rebecca-ism. You'd become, you'd become Rebecca. I was going to say I'm Rebecca. <laughs> you are Rebecca. So where did they get this whole Rebecca thing? Probably from the Bible. So Genesis 24, 60 And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands, of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. There would even be sort of a little play acting involved here, a little dialogue between Rebekah and her daughters when they were at the toll gate getting prepared to tear it down, where Rebekah would pretend to be blind. And so we have a little old-timey, crimey table reading for you. I am going to be Rebecca. And I'm going to be all the other Rebecca's. Yes, you're going to be Rebecca's daughters, the rioters. What is this, my children? There is something in my way. I cannot go on. What is it, Mother Rebecca? Nothing should stand in your way. I do not know, my children. I am old and cannot see well. Shall we come and move it out of your way, Mother Rebecca? Wait, it feels like a big gate put across the road to stop your old mother. We will break it down, mother. Nothing stands in your way. Perhaps it will open. Oh, my dear children, it is locked and bolted. What can be done? It must be taken down, mother. You and your children must be able to pass. Off with it then, my children. (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) So after they finished their little play, down came the toll gate. I love the theatric aspect of this. The mock trials, the the play acting. They have costumes, they have makeup. (laughs) It's outstanding. Yeah. They even seem to have their own publication. I only found reference to this in one newspaper and it was very blurry but I think it was called Dewegust or Dewegust I'm not sure of the pronunciation and I couldn't I didn't really look up the pronunciation of that just because I couldn't even tell from what the letters were yeah yeah so I was like well, that that's not gonna go in my way at all so all right you ready for this mm-hmm. so the observer stated that the six miles around Swimanthly <laughs> it's so hard <laughs> was a kind of uh, this is a quote from the Observer. A kind of dissenter's stronghold. And the consequence is that there is not a district in all South Wales more disturbed or where cowardly malice and unchristian revenge have proceeded greater lengths. They would also occasionally direct their ire toward the clergy, who were seen as part of the system making their lives difficult, especially considering that the Welsh didn't generally conform to the Church of England. And... In that area, there were two reverends on the Turnpike Trust. So they're raking in the money. Of course they are. Two different ways. Why do we eat fish on Fridays, guys? Because clergymen wanted to make money. Yep. They also attacked farms. And you would think that would be counterproductive because you're attacking your own. But they kind of had like a little price fixing thing going on. The Rebecca's would set rates for what they thought would be fair for cows, horses, pigs, wheat, barley, etc., and state that anyone who charged more than those prices, quote, had better look after their own personal safety. That's awesome. They're basically saying, no, like, you cannot charge more than what something is worth just because you're greedy. Exactly, yeah. They sent letters to landlords telling them to lower the rent for their farm tenants, but that really didn't change much. But it was mostly the toll gate that got their their attention. They did the majority of their damage at... Clamarthen, 
Flumathli, Pondulis, and Shangvalak. Wait, no, I think I got that wrong. Shangvalak. I feel like speaking this language, uh, you just kind of pretend that you have a dick in your mouth. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. Well, the, the double L sound that is the... Uh, I'm doing... I make that noise when I, I'm trying to talk while giving head. So, yeah, that's... It's... I, I read somewhere that you put your tongue up towards the, the, the tip of your teeth, like you're going to say an, uh, an L, and then kind of blow out like you're going to say an S. So... I, I still can't do it right. Such I, a sexy noise. I've practiced so much, and I'm getting so much spit on the microphone. <laughs> I told Amber earlier, I was like, there's a splash zone, and you might be in it. I have I have my Gallagher's poncho on <laughs> as we're recording, just in case. Yeah. So far, there had been no deaths, but that was about to change at a toll gate called Handygate. Here we have Sarah Williams, who was a toll taker, Modern recountings have her as a young woman, but all the newspapers of the day said she was 70 years old. So I'm trusting the people who knew her to know. Yeah, I feel like if you were there and said she was 70, um, in, a, in 200 years it doesn't turn into she was 20. Yeah. She'd been receiving threats lately. People saying that if she didn't leave the gate, they'd burn her house down, the toll gate. But that didn't seem to stop her from doing her job. I wonder if the Tollgate pub here in town used to be a Tollgate. Hmm. Well, it, co- it closed down too, so. What? Didn't the Tollgate close down? I did not know that if it did. I don't know. I haven't been out in uh, years. Same. So they're threatening to burn down essentially her livelihood and her home. But they have their own side too. It did not. I forgot what the toll gate was. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. In September 1843, at 3 a.m. one morning, according to the newspapers, a party of ruffians set fire to the thatch of the toll house. Ruffians. I love it. And Sarah Williams ran to a neighboring cottage and begged for help. But that guy, who the papers called a stout, able man, refused to come out, stating that he was afraid. He and his wife did at least beg Sarah to come into the cottage to take shelter. But she was like, hell no, I got furniture back there. (laughs) If they burn down my house, I don't want my furniture to go too. I can save something. The ruffians came back and set fire to the thatch again. And she came out and yelled, I know you and you shall suffer for this tomorrow. And that's when they shot her in the chest, arms, neck, and face. There you go. That'll do it. She managed to stagger to the neighbor's cottage again and died there. Now, this was from the inquest on her death, from the man who lived in the cottage. My wife went to the door and saw the deceased coming toward her and crawling along by the wall, against which she leant to support herself, until she came to my door where she cried, Dear, dear, and fell down, and I found she was dead. Wow. She'd only been the collector at the Hendy Gate for a week. Wow. She had worked at various gates for years. But this was a new position. So even in this inquest, after a description of all the places where the slugs were found in her body by the surgeon who did the postmortem, and that the damage done to her body could only be done by the shots that he found, the inquest jury deliberated for 15 minutes and came back with what the observer called the following extraordinary verdict. That the deceased died from the effusion of blood into the chest, which occasioned suffocation, but from what cause is to this jury unknown. I was really expecting natural causes. I don't know why. I mean, it kind of is. Like, oh, she just had a whole bunch of blood in her chest for no apparent reason, and she suffocated, is what they say. Suffocated from her own bleeding chest. Yeah, that was bleeding for no reason that we know of. There's no reason that we could find. Yeah, it's unknown. I didn't see a thing. (laughs) The papers said that the jury dared give no other verdict. So there was was some fear going around. Yeah, because they'll come burn your house down and shoot you in the face. And they might actually know who you are because you're not wearing a dress. Yeah. There actually were meetings of the Turnpike trustees in the aftermath in which they debated reducing some of the tolls and actually decided in favor of it. So some change is happening here. There were meetings of magistrates who were trying to establish a rural police force. That was met with quite a bit of resistance from the townspeople because 
Who's going to pay for it? Yeah, they already pay enough. They're like, I can already see my taxes going up from somebody who's going to stop me from doing the things that I'm doing to protest my taxes going up. So, so yeah, no. That's a no for me. So finally, the government just sent in the troops. There was a, also a gang of fake Rebecca's using the protest group's disguise methods as a cover for petty crime. Due to all of this, the troops coming in, uh, the fake Rebecca's, and uh, what seemed like kind of a realization that things had just gone a little too far. The Rebecca's chilled with the violence and started having protest meetings to discuss their issues. They had meetings all the time prior to this, but they met in secret at night, and these were more public meetings held during the day. There weren't really, aside from the ones I've mentioned, too many positive effects of all this rioting and upheaval, but a few good things happened. Some rents were reduced, the tolls went down overall, and in 1844 there was some toll reform that specifically targeted whales. Well, good. I, I would hope they would just get rid of them, though. Yeah, yeah, and there's still always going to be something, you know? Because in the 1860s and 70s, there were more riots, the second Rebecca riots, because there was a privatization of the salmon reserves that they relied on going on, and that didn't sit very well. They were like, no, that's ours. <laughs> How dare you? You can't just have it. Yeah. So I licked it. It's mine. <laughs> Licking things to claim them as your own. Even, even salmon. <laughs> Salmon's alive, flopping. And the Rebecca's resounded even into the 1970s when the Becca, B-E-C-A, group was formed in Wales. This was a sort of artist's collective that seemed geared towards, as far as I can tell, drawing attention to expressing and protecting the Welsh national identity. Well, cool. So, to finish us off on the Rebecca riots, I have some pubs near Flamanthley. <laughs> okay. I think that was actually my closest yet. That was, it was good. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I have no idea. So, we have the Bucket and Spade. Okay. The Clockwork Tavern. Okay. The Vale of Neath. Okay. And the Jailhouse, which has some fun reviews. Okay. All right. One star. Completely horrible. Not worth it at all. Well, jail. But it's a pub. Yeah, but it's also a jailhouse. I mean, I, I can't imagine... I don't know. I'm th In my head, I'm just thinking, like, a jail theme... And instead of tables, it's like small cells with bench seats. Yeah. There is or was a bar out in Williamsport. I'm not sure if it's still there. I haven't been out there in forever. But it's called uh, the Cell Block. And it was an old, the old town jail. And they have all the different cell blocks kind of, you know, you'll have Cell Block A. And maybe there's, you know, like a rock band going on there. And then they have a separate area that's like Cell Block B. And, you know, maybe you have, like, I don't know, some jazz or reggae or something, you know, and a DJ over in cell block C. It's actually really neat. That's pretty fun. Yeah. So, but this place is not neat. No. <laughs> so, one star. Because our final uh, one star review. This place was the old Tom Peppers, the only place in Flanethley where you could sell your stolen goods for a pint of lager. Very, 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 very rough and has not changed at all except its appearance as the council offered 250 pounds to give the place an uplift and change its clientele but they still serve the worst of the worst. Do not visit if you do keep an eye... Not, not a lot of punctuation. <laughs> do not visit if you do keep an eye on your wallet and make sure you wear a stab-proof vest. Nice. <laughs> yes. Okay, so don't go there. Yes. All right, so that is the Rebecca Riots and Pubs near Thanathley. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. It was, it was a challenge, but I, I think I rose to it, if not above it. Maybe not above it. I didn't rise above it. I rose to it. You did great. I liked it. So my sources for this were Judith Lloyd on the BBC, the Wikipedia articles on the Cucking Stool and the Rebecca Riots, Ben Johnson on Historic UK, English Heritage, Neil Evans on the BBC, Brick to the Past, which is articles on history illustrated with Lego scenes. Oh, that's amazing. It's really, really neat some inaccuracies from what I could tell, but was really still very neat. Very like, fun, at least. Professionally photographed Lego scenes of these riots. Cool. So neat. And uh, from newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, The Observer.
All right, you ready for me to tell you about a riot? Amber? I am so ready. Tell me about a riot, Amber. I am going to tell you about the Portland Rum Riot. Ooh, I know you like you some rum. So I do want to just clarify it's Portland, Maine, just for our listeners, because as soon as I hear Portland, I immediately went to Oregon. Mm -hmm. But this is Portland, Maine. Um, and I'm going to do the same thing with going a little roundabout to get there. Hmm. So we're going to start with talking about Neil Dow. Now, Neil was born March 20th, 1804, to a Quaker family in Portland, Maine. His father was Josiah, was also a Quaker. He was originally from New Hampshire. And his mother, Dorcas, really glad we don't use that name so much anymore. It is a, a name used frequently in my family history. There were many Dorcas Baxters. That was a very common name, but she was from a prominent Maine family. And I can't even make this up. Her grandfather was Hate Evil, that's his first name, Hate-Evil was his first name, and his last name was Hall. Hate Evil Hall. Hate Evil Hall. Hall, okay. Yeah. I, I, that okay. Prominent family, Hate Evil Hall. You, what? They were Quaker, if you couldn't tell. Well, I mean, if you're going to stand against evil, you may as well go all the way and put it in your damn name. Yep, just name your kid Hate Evil. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't get over that. I was like, I need to include it. I'm sorry. All right. So Neil was, this is the, this is the ironic origin story of Emperor Palpatine. I feel like there's <laughs> some sort of like origin story there. But anyway, Neil was the middle child of three and he was the only boy. So he had an older sister and a younger sister. Neil's father, uh, after he got married to Dorcas, got some of that family money and opened a tannery in Portland and was actually pretty successful. So a nice kind of like normal, I would think this is probably like upper middle class mm. upbringing, if not maybe even upper class with the family money from his mother's side. He went to a Quaker school in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and then more school at Edward Payson's Portland Academy before joining his father to learn how to tan in, 19, or excuse me, in 1826. So Neil, when he got to start learning the tanning business, he'd already been through all this schooling, and he was kind of into like the technology of the day. And so he was one of the first to incorporate steam power into tanning. Oh, that's pretty neat. Just a little bit ahead of his time. And like most religious people, Neil would pick and choose what he wanted to believe from the religion that was shoved down his throat. <laughs> Since Neil was hot-tempered, he enjoyed a good fight. He was not all about the Quaker pacifism mm. at all. He also liked to wear very fancy clothes. So not really about the dressing plainly like mm. the Quakers do. Not so much. But one thing he did agree with was abstinence from tobacco and alcohol, because those are just made by the devil, apparently. Yeah, there's a lot of cherry-picking of beliefs here. As most religious people, yeah. So now, when Neil turned 18, he was expected to join the militia. That was really common at the time. But the militia were often drunk, <laughs> and he didn't like alcohol. So he's like, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to join the volunteer fire department. He found a loophole that if you were a member of the volunteer fire department, you did not have to join the militia. Oh. So he wanted to avoid the alcohol. And so he, he turns into a fireman. And then he started lobbying Maine legislature to reform fire companies to increase efficiency. So this, like, automatically I'm thinking this is the coworker that everybody hates. <laughs> And that same year, he threw a fit because the fire department had an anniversary celebration and wanted to have alcohol at their celebration. <gasps> no. <gasps> My pearls. I am clutching them. He, he was clutching his pearls. So they did actually end up having to compromise with him because he was, he was just throwing a bitch fit about it. And they're like, all right, we won't serve liquor, but we're still going to have wine. And he's like, fine, I guess. So... You can tell already that Neil is um, kind of a dick. He's a little persnickety. He's very, yeah, persnickety. That's a good word. That's a good word. He felt that many of the problems that he saw in society were caused by alcohol. 
So like, I really wish I could have found a good story to back this up, how he was beaten up by a drunk or something, or somebody fingered his butthole. <laughs> I couldn't find any good reason for him to hate alcohol the way that he does, but he just hates it. Now, eventually, he stayed with the fire department, and he became a fire chief. And this motherfucker let a liquor store burn to the ground. <gasps> it was on fire. They got the call, and he ordered them not to put it out. Oh, yeah, he is a dick. Yes. He is. This guy's a douche. He did not do his job because of his personal beliefs and his distaste for alcohol. This is the pharmacist who will not give out birth control. Yes, yes. He's, he's the first anti-birth control pharmacist. So anyway. Well, he's probably not the first at this time. But. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. So the next year, Neil meets Maria Cornelia Maynard, who is a merchant's daughter. And they married on January 20th, 1830. They lived at 714 Congress Street in Portland, and their house still stands today, actually. They, oh. they turned it into a museum at one point. Now, Neil and Maria had nine children, five of which actually survived infancy. Yeah, that's a decent rate for the time. Yeah, so two sons and three daughters. Now, Neil eventually earned himself some nicknames. <laughs> Napoleon of Temperance and Father of Prohibition. So I thought this was a fun fact. At this time, the typical American male consumed three times the amount of alcohol of his modern-day counterpart. Wow. We need to step it up, guys. <laughs> we are lagging. Now, Dow did end up writing memoirs and um, had, had put in his memoirs that a significant portion of a man's pay was in the form of daily rum rations. It was the rule to quit work at 11 in the forenoon and 4 in the afternoon to drink. In every grocer's shop were casks of rum punch constantly prepared in a tub, sometimes on the sidewalk, just as lemonade is to be seen now on the 4th of July. That was, that was from Dow's memoirs. Hmm. Do you know how excited I would be if there were just bathtubs full of rum punch yeah. and at 11 o'clock and 4 o'clock you took a break to go drink some? That's awesome. That's how we call getting through the day. <laughs> Hey, you know what? It was really stressful times. Like, babies were dying left and right. You know, I, I can't blame them. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. But he saw it as being the downfall of families and fortunes, and he'd point out, like, ramshackle homes and be like, rum did that. No. Rum put the smile on that man's face. <laughs> rum did not make his house fall down. <laughs> to be fair... With the, I know at least in England, when uh, when gin was invented, soon after that there was, who it got bad. <laughs> well, and and we're gonna get to something similar to that in just a second. So now Dow believed that drunkenness was a great threat to the city's well-being, and he actually got a lot of middle and upper class citizens in Portland to agree with him. So, in 1827, he became a founding member of the Maine Temperance Society. They focused on the evils of, of adult beverages. And by 1829, Dow declared he would abstain from all alcoholic beverages. So, I don't know if at some point he was drinking wine and then was like, well, I'm on the Temperance Society now. I guess I can't do that anymore. No drinks. Time to teetotal. Yes, yes. Lots of teetotaling here. So, in 1837, the Temperance Society actually split over whether they should seek to ban wine as well as liquor, and Dow went with the anti-wine forces, and they formed a new organization, the Maine Temperance Union, not society, hmm. whatever. And in 1850, Dow was elected president of the Maine Temperance Union. I imagine it's pretty easy to get elected president of something you helped create. Generally, yes. 
So I'm not going to take that as a huge win. But the next year, he ran for mayor of Portland on the Whig ticket and won, son of a bitch, by a vote of 1,332 to 986. Ooh, that's pretty close. Within a month of taking office, he lobbied state legislature to pass a statewide prohibition law. Fuck you, Dow. (laughs) And they did. Wow. So Dow met with the new governor, John Hubbard, and they signed the bill into law on June 2nd, 1851. Maine was the first state to ban alcohol, and statewide prohibition became known around the country as the Maine Law. Huh. After this law was signed in, Dow allowed anyone that sold liquor to have a two-week grace period to sell their stock out of state and then began to confiscate whatever they had left. His enforcement efforts put drinking establishments out of business, but the less fancy saloons would just move their to secret locations, as you do during Prohibition. Yeah, speakeasies. Yeah. Well, he referred to them as secret grog shops. <laughs> that would just be a great name for a bar. Secret grog shop. Yeah, and he insisted that they only existed because of foreigners. Oh, well, of course. So now let's get into these foreigners. <sighs> Gotta get that xenophobia in there somehow. Well, yes. And the ones that Neil, Neil Dow did not like? Guess. Irish. Yes, it was the Irish. <laughs> it was. So the city was actually being flooded with Irish immigrants at this time. And why? Because they want to live. Basically, because what what is happening in this time period? The Irish potato famine. The potato famine. Absolutely. So, it was not a super fun time in Ireland. We all know that. And like a million people died. So, it's a good time to get the hell out of Ireland. Mm -hmm. They came over to the U.S. And a lot of them landed in Maine for whatever reason. Now, at some point, Neil Dow had traveled to Ireland. Right after the potato famine. Like a year or two after. And he wrote about that in his memoir. A glorious country Ireland is, but the people are reduced to a condition of the most extreme poverty, largely by whiskey. Look, asshole. (laughs) Whiskey did not make them starve to death. But sure, he actually blamed all Irish people for being drunk as the cause of all their issues. Uh, and if memory serves, I again, I could be totally wrong on this because it's been a while since I've read uh, a book about it or whatever, listened to a podcast, the many ways that I intake information. But I believe that in large part, the Irish potato famine was uh, caused by some of the British government's policies towards Ireland at the time. And, and that, I think, was some of it. Um, I honestly didn't get too far into the potato famine because I didn't want to fall down that wormhole. It is quite a deep one, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just kind of glossed over it. But I don't Maybe we can find some potato famine crimes next time. Yeah. But, so anyway, Dow served as the mayor of Portland, Maine from 1851 to 1852, and then again, 1855 to 1856. During this time period, the Irish population of the city shot up to 11%. So there's a good bit of of Irish coming to town. So before Dow got the Maine law on the books, he also got another law passed called the 28-gallon law. This one was passed in 1846. And this law prohibited the sale of alcohol in less than 28 gallons. To everyone but doctors. Hmm. Basically trying to make it so only the rich could afford to buy any sort of alcohol. And the average drinker could not. And then any shop that sold single drinks were shut down. So he was already working on this well before he got the main law passed. But in the main law, he put in a loophole. The exemption was alcohol needed for medical, mechanical, or manufacturing purposes could be obtained from a committee. 
So oh, okay. you could basically say, like, I need this for X, Y, and Z. And they would have a committee and say whether you could or could not have it. So bureaucracy. Yeah. I do believe that uh, this could be apocryphal. I'm going to look all these things up, like, after. <laughs> and if they're wrong, I'm just going to edit them out so I don't sound stupid. I do believe that when Winston Churchill visited the U.S. during nationwide prohibition, he got a prescription from a, a doctor for uh, for his brandy or whiskey or whatever he preferred to drink. <laughs> so that because he was like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this bullshit. Well, yeah, and you could actually do that. Some people brewed the booze at home and sold it to neighbors out of their kitchens. Farmers still were making hard cider and wine out of the fruit they had. Tavern owners just thought fines were a cost of doing business. Pharmacies and grocery stores sold legal medicines that just so happened to be alcoholic and they couldn't even keep them in stock. Hmm. Shocking. But the Irish neighborhoods, so they had a few neighborhoods that were predominantly Irish. They were disproportionately raided all the time looking for whatever bathtub whiskey or they would just be like, no, we're pretty sure he has something there. I mean, he's Irish. But the reason they could do this, go and raid these houses, is there was an interesting clause written into the law so that he could do this. Any, any three voters could apply for a search warrant if they suspected somebody was selling liquor. Oh, gosh. No, this is, this is actually a good thing because this is going to come back to bite them in the ass. Hmm. So the Irish that. <laughs> and German residents, who also felt unfairly targeted, caught wind of the fact that Dow had stored $16,000 worth of alcohol in a vault under City Hall. Huh. Oh, what? Yes. So apparently there was a shipment and he had not passed it out yet for whatever medical purposes. So he stored it at City Hall. So three voters went and got a search warrant. I love it. On June 2nd, you remember June 2nd? That was when he signed it into law. Mm-hmm. So on the anniversary of this being signed into law, four years later, June 2nd, 1855, a man named Royal Williams and two others appeared at the police court swearing that Dow had liquor for the purpose of selling them in the state in violation of the law. <laughs> the warrant was granted. Yes! So they marched to City Hall with their little search warrant. They had a little crowd gathered there. And they presented the warrant to police, and police would not search. They would not give them access to search. Bastards. Dow claimed that he had only intended to sell the alcohol its legal purposes, but he broke his own law because he did not have the license required to possess alcohol. So he was breaking a law, and then the police wouldn't allow the men to search. And as more men got off of work in the evening, they started gathering around City Hall. It became pretty clear police weren't going to cooperate with the court order that they had. And uh, a, a bunch of people milling about angrily, talking about maybe we should just rush the building and go find it ourselves. Eventually, after a few hours, this crowd was about 3,000 people. My, that's quite the crowd. I wonder what they might do. I wonder indeed. They, the police would warn the crowd and be answered with insults. <laughs> Good. They would uh, try to disperse the crowd, and that only made them more excitable and made them threaten them. Uh, the ringleaders at several points were arrested and then rescued by the other people. And the uh, marshal reported to the mayor... That they could not keep the peace. And then they started throwing rocks. <laughs> so Dow called out to the militia to get militia there, since the policeman couldn't do it anymore. We're throwing rocks. We're freaking out. 22-year-old sailor 
from Deer Isle. His name was John Robbins. He made it through and he broke a hole in the door of the liquor vault, reached his arm through and unlocked it, and Dow ordered the militia to shoot. Oh no. They shot John. Uh, one source did say he was shot in the head, but most of the other sources just say he was shot several times and, and stumbled away. And even as the crowd started to break up, the militia continued to fire on them. So uh, John did pass away, but seven more people were injured. And John was actually supposed to have been married the very next day. Oh, no. Oh, poor John. So Dow was widely criticized for his strong-arm tactics and was actually prosecuted for improperly acquiring the alcohol, but acquitted. Son of a bitch. He was also tried and acquitted for his role in ordering the militia to shoot. Huh. And uh, his political career, at least, never recovered, and he lost his bid for re-election the following, the following year. And his political... I can't talk today. Jesus freaking Christ. Samantha. Samantha. Right. <laughs> so his uh, political opponents overturned Maine's liquor law, and the bars and saloon opened once again. I do have a little bit of karma for us, though. So uh, we're going to continue with Neil Dow. 1861, at the age of 57, he enlisted as a colonel in the 13th Maine Infantry to fight in the Civil War. He, uh, at one point, held his men back and joined an assault late because he didn't believe his commanding officers when they said it was a good idea. <sighs> because he's a dick. But when he did get there, he got shot in the right arm and left thigh. I'm sad he lived. While in the hospital, he started lobbying for a transfer to a theater, which I guess would give him a better chance of being promoted in the military. Uh. If he wasn't just in a hospital, he was in a fancy theater. <laughs> and on June 30th, 1862, he felt like he was healed enough to ride a horse. And he was like, well, let me go say hi to my men and I'm inspiring and this is what I'm going to do. And the idiot stayed out after dark and was captured. I'm very happy about this. <laughs> they put him in prison until February of 1864. So uh, almost two years, not quite. And Civil War prisons were no joke. No, not at all. Not at all. And the only reason they let him go is they actually exchanged him for General Robert E. Lee's son, William, who was a prisoner on the other side. Yeah. So it was a prison swap. Doesn't seem like <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. But he was, uh, his health was affected by all the prison time. And he did resign from the army. But at, at some point in there, I guess he got his promotion to brigadier general uh, for the Union in the Civil War. And he continued to fight for prohibition until he died at 93 in 1897. He never held public office again, despite running for governor and for president of the United States. Oh, my. He ran against Garfield. It's so funny how the names of the people who run for president but then lose just get completely forgotten for the most part. Yeah. Uh, he was pretty solidly hated during his military time because he would not allow any man under his command to drink. And he also felt completely entitled to confiscate any property that he wanted. So as they were marching, if he saw a dead soldier, he would steal from him. If he found a house that he felt like ransacking, he would. Cornelia, his, his wife, had died in 1883, but Dow's unmarried daughter, also named Cornelia, lived with him and assisted in temperance causes. In 1891, his son Frederick and his family moved in as well. Frederick remained active in his father's re former Republican Party and was the editor of the Portland Evening Express. Now, Neil Dow, despite a fall from a horse in 1890, continued on in good health. And on his 90th birthday... Uh, a large crowd gathered to celebrate him and his life's work. 
1895, he gave his final public speech, criticizing the city government for not enforcing prohibition laws. He began to write his memoirs that I did quote earlier, uh, but died before completing them. So, I mean, I guess you got to give the guy points for passion and stick-to-itiveness, but I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want it either. But I did see something really fun in my research here. Mm. So Portland, Maine actually started an annual rum riot. Huh. It's a series of events celebrating cocktails, bars, and bartenders from all around New England. It's a five-day event from, like, May 30th to June 3rd. I hope they kept it up. I know with COVID, it's, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. But, uh, th- yeah, they started an annual rum riot to just wander around for five days drinking and celebrating being drunk. <laughs> That's fabulous. So that is my story of the Portland Rum Riot, and my show notes are Mayor Tiny Dick and the Rum Riot. <laughs> Excellent. Because I hate you, Neil Dow. Yeah. My sources for this were wikipedia.org, irishcentral.com, the Irish Times by Nathan Mannion, Wretched Richard's Almanac, hmm. Smithsonian Mag by Kat Eschner, New England Historical Society, Portland, Maine Walking Tours, The Take Magazine by Janet Reynolds. Nice. That was excellent. What a dick he was. He's such a fucking asshole. (laughs) I hate him. And he was not even a good person. He just kept... Drinking is bad, but don't... Everything I do is perfect. I can steal this. He's dead. What does he know? Right? I mean, yeah. Talk about picking and choosing. Ah. I do like the bits where he got shot and fell off a horse and got put in jail. That was some good stuff, yeah. That was, that was some good karma. Not nearly enough karma. I feel like he needed so much more <laughs> karma. And, like, this is the type of person that makes everybody else miserable. Like, every single person that ever worked with Neil Dow probably hated him and his tiny dick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's all I got. Okay. All right. Well, that was awesome. And, uh, yeah, this was really fun. The, the riot episode. <laughs> So, uh, if you enjoyed that, you can go and rate us wherever you rate things, wherever you listen to things. Rate, review, subscribe, woo! The usual. And you can do that on Spotify now, although as Jackson discovered today, only on the app, not on the, the on your computer. Oh. <laughs> that's weird. Or at least if you're running the app on your computer, you can't do it through there. I'm pretty sure that's how he was doing it and not from the website, but I could be wrong. Anyhow, so... So yeah, go do that. And uh, there's our PayPal. If you're not feeling like the Patreon, you can do that and uh, send over any amount of money, whatever you want, and use the email address oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com, which you can also use to get in touch with us if you have any case suggestions or anything like that. We also have a tip jar on Good Pods, uh, where we were one of the uh, top shows this week. Oh, awesome. Yeah, they tweeted, somebody tweeted us, I think the person from Good Pods, so that was really neat. And uh, it was our, a Dr. Dingus episode was trending. The cunning linguist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, social media, come over and say hi. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Old Timey Crimey. Another thing you can do, I was looking at our, our book list today. If you don't feel like the Patreon, don't feel like the PayPal, but you want to do something to contribute and also, you get to do something that can kind of uh, make you feel like you control us. You can control us. <laughs> you can control us by buying any of the books on our old-timey crimey wish list on Amazon, which should be linked in the show notes if I've gotten that straightened out. And yeah, do that. Send us the book, ebook, print it, doesn't matter. And we'll do a case on that. So we'll do a whole episode and give you a shout out there, too, as the uh, contributor of the book. So everything you do there, you know, Amazon, Patreon, PayPal, all of that supports the show because we, we are an independent show. It's just us. So it's just us. You know, we're not we don't have a big network or anything like that. So you can can help us continue to grow, which we are very excited to see happen. And uh, another thing you can do is uh, buy merch. Link is hopefully in the show notes. And tell your friends. Tell your friends all about us. Tell your family. Tell your bosses and your coworkers. Tell everyone you know. Everyone you know. Take out a billboard. <laughs> all right. What are you doing this week, Amber? Uh, working. Yeah. That's uh, 
what I'm doing. Just working. Yeah. Maybe drinking some rum after that. It makes me really want rum. (laughs) The opposite of what Neil Dow would have wanted, and that's what I really want to do. (laughs) You are the the Neil Dow contrarian. I am. Like, I I feel like we need more bathtubs full of rum punch in the streets. (laughs) And I don't know why this is not a thing. It is missing from our society very much, yes. Yes. So what are you doing this week? Um... Many baths. Many baths? <laughs> Many baths. I took a nice bath today. I reached kind of like my breaking point where I'm like, okay, I can't sit in this chair anymore. And uh, so I took a nice, nice long bath today and it was great because I had no pain. And then I got out of the bath and I was like, oh, there's the pain. There's the pain. So what I need is for somebody to invent something that's like kind of like an iron lung, but bath. <laughs> I think they exist. Okay, well, I need one. So, um, yeah, I just needed to be able to, like, a, a convenient way of refilling the water or keeping it warm or something like that. Because in warm water is literally the only time I'm not in pain. So. You could just get, like, a really big cauldron and put you over a fire. Are you going to cook me with some, like, carrots and be. stuff? It, are you Bugs Bunny? <laughs> no, I really just want a pot large enough for a camel. Yeah, yeah, we do need to get you a camel pot. So, I mean, you you could take a bath in that, and we could just stoke the fire every once in a while. You are going to cook me, aren't you? I might cook you. Then you're going to stuff me with chickens that are stuffed with eggs. That is horrifying. It's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and uh, so there's there's a lot of jockeying for attention for your, your ear holes. But... Uh, <laughs> We really appreciate it when uh, you direct your ear holes in our direction. So thanks for that. And uh, you're going to riot. Do it in a dress. Just saying. Yes. Always do it in a dress. Makes it classy. So, all right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.